Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the monthly books podcast hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer. I bring one book, he brings one book and we chat. Our only rule is that the books have to be more than two years old. Think of this pod as our very mild resistance to the cultural overload of new, 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 and an encouragement to reread old faves or those you've always been meaning to read. Like our own personal book club, but you're invited. Okay, I'm going to break the fourth wall now and say that we are recording this just a few days after recording our last episode, just a few days before we record our next episode, because I am burrowing into maternity leave imminently. And it's feeling a little bit like reading for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And I managed to lose my copy of one of today's books twice in the chaos. So I shall likely find three copies of it next week, probably all together having a little party. This is true. It's still pretty cold for us back in the past. (laughs) And if anyone in the intervening time between our recording and your listening finds two copies of Memorial by Brian Washington knocking about, please do return them to Pandora Sykes post haste. Or actually just enjoy them. Keep them and enjoy them. Bobby, what are you reading right now? I'm just starting Bewilderment by Richard Powers, who wrote The Overstory, which was this this insanely ambitious book about loads of characters over hundreds of years, all drawn together by trees. I loved it. This one's apparently just as big, just as emotional. Yes, I'm not. I'm not sure that one. Um, I'm not sure that one calls my name. Um, but not not a tree fan. I just don't know if I can do a book about trees. But famous last words: If this podcast has taught me anything, I shouldn't shouldn't judge a book before I give it a go. I just finished rereading romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. I reread it because I was interviewing her last week, which was a joy. I just adore that book. It's coming out, I think, in April. So it's a pre-order one. And it's set on a late night comedy program in the States called The Night Owls, based on Saturday Night Live. And it's about a woman called Sally Mills, who is infuriated by what she calls the social rule, that average looking comedy writers always score beautiful, famous women, but that it never works the other way around. But then she meets a pop star named Noah Brewster. Um, it's it's a bit different to the books she's really well known for, like American Wife and Rodham. But it's so good. It works so well. And honestly, I could read it for a third time tomorrow. It sounds a bit Taylor Jenkins read. Is that a, would that be a fair comparison? I would say a bit more literary. Okay. Okay. Um, I will have to try it. Do you mind if I, if I do a, a bit of, of shameless self-promotion? No, you are due some. So the paperback of my book, Isaac and the Egg, is out this month on the 13th of April. It's a novel about grief, masculinity, and a young widower who finds an enormous egg in the forest and decides to take it home. As any author will tell you, pre-ordering a book has a massive, massive impact. So if you've thought about reading it, please do pre-order either from your local indie bookshop or I will put the Waterstones link in the show notes. My 17-year-old niece sent me a text about it yesterday. I gave it to her for Christmas. Do you want to hear what she said? (laughs) Only if she liked it. (laughs) (laughs) 
It was shit. No. Just finished reading Isaac and the Egg. Such a heartbreaking and mending read at the same time as they play off grief, anxiety, agoraphobia and depression almost jovially. I will recommend it to many people. She sounds about 70. <laughs> well, that's very nice of her. She should be doing this podcast. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Hint taken. <laughs> and now on to book chat. Those who are afraid of spoilers, beware. We will be discussing these books in detail for our fellow readers, which means there will be some. Kick us off, Bobby. Bobbly. Uh, that threw you. <laughs> yeah, it really did. My book this month is Memorial by Brian Washington, uh, as we mentioned before, Pandora's third copy of it. As far as our two-year rule goes, I'm pretty close to the wire here. It actually came out in 2020. But if we're going to talk about books that are 300 years old sometimes, I think we can talk about some that are three as well. I've allowed it to slip through on this occasion, even though the hype is still arguably hyping. The hype still hypes, yes. Memorial is the first novel by Brian Washington, who published an interconnected collection of short stories called Lot the year before. Lot won a load of prizes, then this came out a year later to a lot of hype and, and, and a lot of acclaim, especially in America. It was on every best of the year list. The production company who made uh, Uncut Gems and Moonlight, A24, bought the film rights. Can you say Uncut Gems properly, please, how Julia Fox famously did? Uncut Gems? <laughs> It's up there with Angela Bassett did her thing. Anyway, onwards. <laughs> <laughs> Memorial is, yeah, it's 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 even another Barack Obama recommendation, actually. We should actually rename this podcast Barry's Faves. Yeah, maybe the podcast should be co-hosted by Barack Obama and your niece. <laughs> so, Pandora, I, I, I assume I assume you were aware of this book because it feels like it was quite a massive thing in the book world, but I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was necessarily like sorrow and bliss famous outside of, outside of publishing and, and, and bookstore buys. I read it as a proof, so that would have been three years ago. I swear it was a short story first, but I actually Googled and I can't find evidence of this, so I must have just made it up. Well, he does write a lot of short stories, so you might have read one of his. And it, it, it has got that sort of hook of a really good short story, which is a premise that it's almost impossible to not go, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> uh, so it's about this It's about this young interracial couple called Benson and Mike. They live together in this gentrifying neighbourhood of Houston called the Third Ward. They've got a fairly fraught relationship. Mike's a Japanese-American chef. Benson, uh, or Ben, is a black daycare teacher. And it's his point of view which introduces the premise of the novel. This is how it starts. Mike's taking off for Osaka, but his mother's flying into Houston. Just for a few weeks, he says, or maybe a couple of months, he says, but I need to go. The first thing I think is, fuck. The beginning is so good. It's a mildly unconvincing plot in that would anyone really do this, fly their mum in and then immediately fly back to the country she's just come from, leaving her alone with their boyfriend who she's never met for months? Wouldn't he just tell her to cancel her flight? Anyway, my husband always says it's really annoying when I do this with movies. So who cares? It's a book. It makes for some really great relationship building between Mitsuko, Mike's mother, and Benson in Texas, and Mike and his dad back in Osaka. Yeah, and I, th I think the book is told in its entirety. It's told in a way that's very realism, uh, quote unquote, but with characters who do act and speak in quite unrealistic ways. I don't want to mention Sally Rooney. They do both have an aversion to punctuation too, so if, if the shoe fits. They speak a lot less um, loftily, though, than her characters. 
they speak in like there's a lot of like kind of lad <laughs> lad sentences. <laughs> they text each other uh, in very brief sentences rather than sending each other emails that take up whole chapters, <laughs> if exactly. that's what you mean. People are quite torn over the whole speech without speech mark thing, aren't they? To sort of keep it embedded in the text. I quite like it, but I'm not sure if it's an affected thing. Is it a realist thing? I think it's I think it's almost a mod a very modern thing in that it it feels like the way that people text each other. It's like um, you know, l- less punctuation basically. Um I like it. I th- I always if I start reading a book and it's got no speech marks in, I'm like, okay, I'm reading a cool book. It is like a cool so, that's so funny. It it's is like a cool book. It's thing. a cool book thing. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like your friend who's turned off auto capitalization on their on their messages on a on their iPhone. It's in three parts, Benson, Mike, then Benson again. And it basically follows each character's relationship with Mike's parents uh, on either side of the world. So Mike's in Japan caring for his estranged father who's dying. Uh, Benson is back in Houston forming this brilliantly standoffish relationship um, that ends up quite sweet with uh, with Mike's mum, Mitsuko, who's living with him in his uh, in his small flat. She's deliciously rude to him for ages, but she cooks him amazing food. And she's so uniquely herself. I think you can tell how much time Brian Washington has taken to craft her. Here's a particularly sassy bit. Mitsuko's flipping through a magazine when I make it back from work. She stares at my shoes when I step inside, so I turn around and slip them off at the door. I figure I have to try. So I say, how was your day? How was my day? Says Mitsuko. My son leaves the country the morning after I arrive, she says. He leaves me with I don't know who for I don't know how long, she says. I haven't seen him in years, she says, and he's off looking for my ex-husband who is rotting from cancer as we speak. My day was fucking phenomenal, says Mitsuko. (laughs) And I love the bit where he's trying to bond with her and he asks her to tell... He thinks they're getting a bit closer, and they are, but she kind of keeps him on his toes, and he asks her to tell him a story she says, no, you can't have a story. Stories are like heirlooms. You don't just go around asking for heirlooms. I love, I love how, how true and nuanced it is about, about modern relationships, both familiar relationships, family relationships, and the sort of the imperfect in and outs of, of romantic relationships as well. It's got all these tasteful little touches between um, Mike and Benson, like the photos Mike texts from Japan, or the text conversations where Benson actually texts all in lowercase, and Mike all in uppercase, which I really liked. I felt like it really matched the characters and I, I, I really knew them. So, I mean, something I liked is the way that it, it does tend to defy that easy categorization in, in, in lots of different ways in favour of messiness and, and nuance. Both Benson and Mike are flawed. Their fathers are both even more flawed, but they're, but they're not straight up bad guys. They're just presented as, as screwed up men, basically. Something I liked about it is the way it, it, it defies easy categorization in favour of, of that nuance, that messiness. Both Benson and Mike are, are flawed. There's a lot of sex. I mean, it's not superfluous to the plot. The sex shows how they both come together, no pun intended. Even in the bits outside the sex where the, the book itself, the relationships themselves feel a bit unreal, their core relationship feels very real and very messy. And I think it's all, it's also really refreshing as a lot of people noted at the time, to read a gay love story where neither of the characters are white and where whiteness doesn't define them or intrude too much on the actual story being told. Here's a clip of, of Brian Washington himself talking a little bit about that. A big catalyst on my end was wanting to write the sort of story that I had experienced with friends, that I would experienced myself, but that I hadn't seen iterations of in 
much of the contemporary American literature that I'd been spending time with. There weren't too many recently published literary texts that dealt with narratives in which folks from non-white communities were able to have conversations on their own terms without necessarily ceding their concerns or their immediate issues to a larger white gaze. Brian Washington is black, Benson is black, Mike is Japanese. There's obviously a lot of conversation at the moment about who can write what stories. And almost half of Memorial is set entirely in Japan with an entirely Japanese cast. Um, I think Brian Washington has actually lived in Japan before, maybe even still lives there, um, which I think gives kind of credence to the research he's obviously done. But here's what he said about that to GQ. When writing Mike specifically, what was at the forefront of my mind was just how do I write a complete person? I think that's going to be difficult, irrespective of who you're writing about, whether or not they're from your immediate community. If you are trying to think through who this person is on the page, then you're constantly questioning what is their community? What does community mean for them? How do they conceive of themselves within their particular community? What is the history that their family had to navigate in order to make it, whatever geographic point they're at? You have to be conscientious of those questions, regardless of who you're writing about, but even more so when you're writing outside of yourself. For me, an overarching thing is I have so many friends who are coming from communities that I'm learning about, and you don't want to embarrass them. I think that's quite a useful tip for writers who are wondering, you know, what they can and can't write about. I think that's the best way I think I've ever heard it worded as well. Interesting. I mean, it's it's a very hot debate at the moment. I also really like the way he calls the book a queer traumedy, traumedy comedy. I haven't heard of a traumedy before, have you? I've heard, I'm familiar with dramedy, but not traumedy. I think both of today's books could, could probably be defined as traumedies. What was your favourite bit? So for me, in a lot of ways, this is a book about food. Mike's a chef, Mitsuko's a chef. They both talk through food. I love cooking. I love the idea of cooking as as a conversation. So I, I really enjoy the way that the food is used in this that food is used in this book where where words won't suffice. Uh, both in the food Mike cooks for Benson when they're having a hard time, and in the way that Mitsuko actually teaches Benson to to cook Japanese food in her time living with him. The book's got a lot of very short chapters, and I, I loved this particular one, which is a chapter in its entirety from Benson's point of view. Mitsuko buys nine cookbooks from I don't know where. She says we're going to start with the classics. She's been brighter since she heard from her son, a little like Mike's given her a charge. And that night, Mitsuko cooks what she tells me is his favourite, potato karoke, crowded beside onions and gravy, surrounded by sliced tomatoes and lettuce. She mashes the potatoes with pork through her fingers, drizzling the mixture with salt and pepper, moulding tiny patties and flipping them in flour and egg yolks and panko. I watch them crisp from the counter and Mitsuko watches me watch them. It's the most personal thing she's shared with me so far, and I tell her that. She looks at me for a while, then says, don't be stupid. <laughs> I'm not a foodie, and I definitely glazed over the bits in um, with Mike in the restaurant. I think that's maybe why I preferred Benson's bits. My favourite bit is actually right at the end when Mike asks Mitsuko if it's true that she promised Eichu that they would fly back to Japan with him but then they stayed in America instead. And this is before Mitsuko, years later, moves back to Japan. We were supposed to follow him to Japan, says Mike, wiping at his eyes. That's why he left. He went ahead. We were supposed to follow, but we didn't because you didn't want to. You didn't want to put us together. And then I'm just going to skip a bit to what Mitsuko says in reply. 
She says, imagine what it would have taken to have made that decision to pull you away from your father. Think about how I would have thought that through, how it would have eaten me up. That would mean that I'd taken stock of the situation and I decided that you growing up without him was better than growing up with whatever man your father could potentially become, whatever he had become when he left. That would mean that I believed in us, in you and me, more than I did in whoever your father might just maybe someday become. And I would have to live with the consequences of knowing that I might be wrong and that if I was wrong, I could never take it back. If I was wrong, I would bring that decision to my deathbed. And I love that. I love the way she said it as a hypothetical. Yeah, that's it's beautiful. I mean, the, the TLS calls the whole book uh, a romance that doubles as a quest for parental love, which I agree with because I think this is as much a book about, about fathers and mothers as it is about Benson or Mike. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've spoken mainly about Mike's parents, but there's Benson bonding with his mother again, his father's recovery, Mike's father's death, Mike and Mitsuko bonding somehow through Benson. I mean, it's more about the parents, I think, than it is about Mike and Benson's relationship. Yeah, and the, the Washington Post says that it 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 may this may feel like the contrived start of a zany meet the parents mix up, but Memorial is a profoundly sensitive story about the rough boundaries of love in a multicultural society. That's very funny, but I don't really understand what they mean about the rough boundaries of love. Are there boundaries to their love? I guess maybe in the sense of of love having rough edges, because Mike and Benson are both both quite abrasive, especially Mike, and they they can be real dicks to each other you you don't you don't know if you want them to be together in the long term but i think you do want them to give it a go um i do think that that washington post quote hits the nail on the head and it's 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 true to what we were saying about Mosin and hamid's books in the last episode that the mark of a, a good author is someone who can take a central premise which might might be corny or on the nose in someone else's hands you know that idea of like oh mum's coming to stay but i'm not there but then turn it into something really genuine and really profound. I don't know if I think it's corny because I don't think I've ever read. <laughs> I don't think I've ever read a book <laughs> where that actually happens. It could have been like Meet the Parents in, you know, in someone else's hands. Yes, you know what I mean? Like yes. that sort of comedy, oh, I don't get on with your dad, or I don't get on with your mum comedy. And it, it just isn't like that at all. Yes, that's very true. Would you have changed anything? It's a very intentionally slow and intentionally quiet book. So it, it can drag a little bit in places. I did really enjoy finding out that in writing it, uh, Brian was aiming to get Mike and Benson's sections to the exact same length so that you spent the amount, the same amount of time with each of them so you could sort of make up your mind on their relationship, I guess. Uh, I think there's maybe like a thousand words difference in the length of the sections. But I actually didn't think the book needed quite as much time in Japan. I, I agree with you. The, restaurants, the restaurant bit seemed a bit endless. And I really, I pretty much wanted the whole thing to be about Mike and Benson's life in, in Houston and, and Mitsuko's uh, appearance in Houston. Yeah, I was a bit bored with the restaurant bits. I also got a bit bored sometimes with the play school bits. Yes, I, I agree with that. I, I think really I just always wanted it to be about Mitsuko because I just thought she was the best, most interesting, most beautifully done character. She's really tough. She's got this really dry sense of humour, but she's also this like total enigma. Benson catches her at one point bawling her eyes out at Made in Manhattan. It's so great because it's it feels it feels like it it, it shouldn't make sense, but but you does, you also yeah. just you're like that's so Mitsuko. And she's not just comic relief either, as, as she could have been. I, that's what that Washington Post review was getting at, I think. She is the glue that holds the whole thing together. The book literally starts with her arriving and ends with her leaving. And she's also the, the glue that holds Mike and Benson together in the end. Before before she leaves, the three of them go out for dinner and she says, you'll be fine, you'll figure this out. 
It's not a waste, is what I'm saying. There are no wastes. Either nothing is a waste or everything is a waste. But you two could do worse than each other than being in each other's lives. Do you understand? And then they drive her to the airport and and, and she leaves in almost this sort of Mary Poppins-like way, disappearing into the distance. Uh, Benson says, I watch Mitsuko take her luggage. She doesn't look back as she steps into the airport. She turns the corner for her ticket and she swivels up the escalator and she ascends slowly, gracefully, beatifically until she's gone home. And that's how the whole book ends. So, you know, it, it, it sort of all is about her. I tired a bit of the staccato sentences and for someone that swears like a fishwife, I can't believe I'm saying this, all the fuck, fucked, fuckings and shits. There's a lot of, I don't say shit, he doesn't say shit. And I found sentences, I found sentences like this a bit grating. We ate single topping pizzas and drank gas station wine. It's what loads of new novels seem to be doing at the moment. And I guess, again, it's kind of, I don't know, modern something, but like single topping pizza, that's a really unnecessary detail. Do you reckon gas station wine is what Americans call petrol? (laughs) I also found Omar and Mike meeting at the end a bit weird. Like Mike was handing Benson over to Omar and he was like really thrilled about it. He can't stop grinning. And Mike and Benson's separation is really dragged out. But I mean, it was also kind of beautiful. I guess not every relationship has to end in acrimony. Maybe that was the point. Yeah, I did. I didn't love the stuff with Omar and 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 his kid brother and all the all the playgroup stuff. I it just it felt extra to me it felt a bit baggy but credit where credit's due he does write really really believable toddlers and i I always say that about such a fun age by kylie Mm -hmm, reed mm -hmm. it's got this like this great toddler character who speaks like a toddler and and says real toddler things and i think it's quite hard to write in a child's voice without it coming across as like really cringe or or implausible yeah i loved ahmed and i loved benson's unfurling relationship with omar i mean i love how earnest omar is and how how much that contrasts with the cynicism in mike's and benson's relationship you know it's really baked into their relationship we learn that in over four years they rarely say they love each other they don't really define their relationship in loving terms it's always very sort of like vague and Omar is very hot on his sleeve. It's it's a nice change for Benson. And you feel like Mitsuko sort of cracked him open, her son's boyfriend, lol, so that he can receive that love from someone else. And then at the same time, of course, his father is in therapy and their family is sort of making peace with one another. It definitely ends on a moment of peace, I think. Yeah, that's true, actually. It does, it does have a, a weirdly happy ending. And I think you've changed my mind about Omar because he does provide a, a nice and probably quite necessary contrast to, to their relationship. So that's Memorial. Brian Washington has his second novel coming out later this year. It's called Family Meal. Will you be reading it? Yes, I will. And I really want to read a lot now, too. 
The Virgin Suicides, a book written almost 30 years ago that remains as cult as it ever was. Just last week, I was reading a piece in The Guardian by the author of a new book called Brutes, who was inspired by Virgin Suicides. You've likely watched the film by Sophia Coppola, but have you read the book? I've actually never seen the film. Really? I just assumed you had. I think I assumed everyone had. Well, it's quite me. Um, <laughs> and after I said I was such an emo when we talked about Wuthering Heights, but <laughs> I am very aware of the film, if that helps. And in the in the interests of radical honesty, I did mean to watch it before recording this podcast, but I only finished reading the book this morning and I didn't want to spoil it. It sort of feels on a par with not having seen American Beauty or The Beach. Yeah, I, I will be crawling back under my rock straight after this episode. <laughs> well, do not worry, because luckily we are talking about the book, not the film. But the film, I want to start with the film because I do think it's most people's introduction, or at least most millennials' introduction to Virgin Suicides. So the film came out in 2000. I remember it was the Kirsten Dunst heyday. Bring It On, Swoon, came out that same year. It had Josh Hartnett in it, also in his absolute heyday. I absolutely loved it. And weirdly, presciently, timelily, Studio Canal have actually just released a restored version of the film, which you can now stream online. You couldn't watch the film online before that, which was quite odd. I tried to watch it a few months ago. So I inevitably came to the film before the book. The book was published in 1993 by the American writer, Jeffrey Eugenides, and I never knew this. It was actually first a short story for the Paris Review, which came out in 1990. Virgin Suicides, The Virgin Suicides, is his first book. He hasn't written many books, but the ones he has are absolutely cult. Middlesex, for example, won the Pulitzer. So I came to the book with high expectations. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you sound disappointed. I'm not disappointed I'm conflicted but before I get into that I'm going to give you a pre for anyone unfamiliar with the plot of the virgin suicides again as always kudos for listening to this podcast and <laughs> spoiling the whole book for yourself but anyway the the title is a bit like a daily mail headline in that it is entirely self-explanatory the virgin suicides is about five golden-haired sisters they're called the lisbons um, who all commit suicide one by one over the course of one year in the mid-1970s. It's narrated by a Greek chorus of teenage boys who are obsessed with the sisters and who collect evidence after their deaths, interviewing neighbours and people who knew the Lisbon families if they were solving a mystery, which in a way they are, because it's not about what happened, it's not who done it, it's about why the girls committed suicide. And even now, as old men with paunches, they remain fascinated by their deaths. It's a Greek tragedy, essentially. It's about sex and death and adolescence and yearning and depression. And this isn't very Greek tragedy. The American dream, the good stuff, basically. I love anything about teenage girls, anything about tension in suburbia or suburban dissatisfaction, like Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, Mad Men, The Stepford Wives, even Don't Worry Darling, actually. Basically, that mental turmoil behind the frilly pinnies and the garden hoses. I'm less cultured than you, so I'm actually going to add WandaVision into that as well. That was a, a good recent example. You are definitely not less cultured. The book begins so simply and eloquently and powerfully with even a touch of humour. On the morning, the last Lisbon daughter took her turn at suicide. It was Mary this time, sleeping pills like Therese. The two paramedics arrived at the house knowing exactly where the knife drawer was and the gas oven and the beam in the basement from which it was possible to tie a rope. They got out of the EMS truck, as usual moving much too slowly in our opinion, and the fat one said under his breath, this ain't TV folks, this is how fast we go. 
<laughs> the whole book is is filled with descriptions like that, which are which are right on that line between really beautiful and really really dark and morbid. Um, and I, I even when I, as I often did when I was reading this, didn't really understand what the book was was exactly saying to me. I loved the way it was saying it. Oh, I'm interested by that. Were there lots of bits when? Which bits did you not feel like? When did you not feel like you understood what the book was saying? I sort of didn't understand what it was saying about why the Lisbon girls were killing themselves until I started reading up on the book afterwards. I I didn't really get the whole over. I felt really stupid because I was like, oh, it's a book about America and capitalism and all that sort of stuff. In the same way, I watched The Banshees of Inner Sharon recently and, and at the end read up on it because I didn't really get what had happened. And it was like, it's about Ireland. And I was like, oh, okay. I have that quite a lot. And I think as well, to be fair, you do you do sort of think you are going to find out why. I mean, the closest thing you get to is that Cecilia was obviously suffering with uh, her mental health and then essentially all the girls go into a deep depression. I don't think necessarily all of them are suffering from mental health until Cecilia kills herself, but you, you don't really know. I mean, let's talk about what's powerful in in the book. I, I think, as we've just said, it really does capture the sense of fear in middle-class America at that time. There's the fear of polio, of nuclear war, of Dutch elm disease, of sex. The irony, of course, is that all of these things that the strict Lisbon parents fear for their beguiling, dreamy daughters are external. And the thing that kills every single one of their daughters is an infectious existential malaise, this deep depression that no one around them sees until it's too late. And there's this this great bit very near the beginning where the doctor says to Cecilia, the first time she tries to commit suicide, what are you doing here, honey? You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. And Cecilia replies, and this is just such a pitch perfect line, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, I did. I did laugh at that. I should also just quickly say, if you do like books about Dutch elm disease, there's a lot of it in the overstory oh, by Richard Powers, which we mentioned me. earlier. <laughs> And also, to be fair, I know I always talk about White Noise by Don DeLillo, but but this definitely feels like it's in the same wheelhouse, a book about the overwhelming dread and depression of life in Cold War, late capitalism, America. I really have to read that book. Is that the one in the supermarket? It has a lot of supermarkets, yeah. It's, it's about a, um, a small suburban town which gets evacuated because of an airborne toxic event. Um, and, and in this one, you know, the dying elms, the dead flies... It was that all very much the same vibe of metaphor, basically. Mm, that's this kind of un- undercurrent of, of stench. And actually, he uses it, even, even when the girls are alive. Uh, Jeffrey Eugenides uses it to sort of undercut the beauty of the girls. For example, there's a line where he says, the odour of all those cooped up girls had begun to annoy Mr. Lisbon. And at another point, we learn that the girls have slightly odd teeth. And, and bristly knees. He doesn't describe them as fragrant and perfect, even though they are beautiful and kind of mesmerise an entire town. And I really like that. But ultimately, just despite his kind of humanising of them, you know, they're not just this sort of amorph- amorphous being. They are ultimately unknowable to the book's narrators. And, and the book is all about what adolescent boys project onto these girls and how their lives afterwards after the the fantasy and the tragedy of the Lisbon girls is just a complete disappointment and and what's so interesting is that is so clearly the architecture of the book but I was listening to an interview he did and he said at first he told the story of of the sisters through the whole community to everyone but the sisters that's really interesting because it feels like this book could not exist 
if it mm, weren't mm. told through the through the lens of teenage boys because that's what it's about and it it did take a while for the book you know the book has got a magic it's really hypnotic it took a while to cast its spell on me it eventually really hooked me in and i i think it was that narration that's done very sparingly that did that did grab me you you keep getting glimpses of of the characters modern lives years later and it, their lives are all so depressing that it that it gives the the story the lives and the deaths of the lisbon girls this really nostalgic rose tinted feel so in the present day the uh the handsome teenager trip fontaine he's at a, a detox ranch looking jaundiced staring out over the desert mr lisbon the dad lives in a in a one bedroom divorce apartment mrs lisbon meets the narrators at a at a carbon monoxide riddled bus stop in a nameless town yeah there's a great bit of of writing where they sort of assess themselves from the from the vantage point of now it didn't matter in the end how old they had been or that they were girls but only that we had loved them and that they hadn't heard us calling still do not hear us up here in the treehouse with our thinning hair and soft bellies calling them out of those rooms where they went to be alone for all time alone in suicide which is deeper than death and where we will never find the pieces to put them back together and in that same interview that he talks about how he was originally going to have the whole town telling the story of the Lisbon girls' suicides, he says how the high school boys are based on people he knew at high school. Um, here's, here's quite a good clip about that. Some of the things horribly came true. Yeah. You know, the people who you know, I based some of the characters on, I made bets about what would happen to them in their lives and when I go back for my high school reunions I, I see that that actually happened in a lot of cases oh goodness yeah yeah it's a little bit frightening yeah I feel like the, the, the whole book has this feeling of, of tiredness and despair as if even the boys as their teenage selves like when they're not old are, are ancient and their prime is already over after the Lisbon girls are gone I think one of my favourite bits in the whole book was this this description of Mr Lisbon after his daughter Cecilia dies he began to look skeletal beneath his green suit, as though Cecilia, in dying, had tugged him briefly to the other side. He reminded us of Abraham Lincoln, loose-limbed, silent, carrying around the world's pain. He never passed a drinking fountain without sampling its small relief. The parents really broke my heart, actually, because for a really long time they try and pretend everything's fine, and then obviously it just goes hideously wrong and they divorce and move. But when Cecilia first tries to commit suicide, two of the neighbourhood women bring over a bunt cake. But Mrs Lisbon refused to acknowledge any calamity, which is, of course, really jarring. It's clever quite early on having them interviewed years later and then being, you know, interviewed separately. I also think it's really clever that the, the male narrators keep referring to exhibits throughout as if, as if they're in the present day collecting evidence and compiling quite a formal report. The whodunit that never was. Yeah, exactly. They'll always be like, refer to Exhibit 9 or Exhibit 14 and it'll be a, a newspaper article or a school report, but not one that you actually see anywhere in the book. It's just mentioned, but it, you know, you, you're know, you given this impression that you, you're meant to have a sheaf of papers next to you while you're reading it. It adds an air of mystery and also this weird sadness that, that you get the sense they're not doing it for any particular reason. They're just very, very, trying very hard to remember their youth. I think it really emphasises as well that the boys don't really understand the girls. They see them as a kind of case study. And here's the author talking about how even the boys like Trip, who get to know the girls intimately, can never really understand them. You can just tell Trip Fontaine was going to peak at high school though, couldn't you? 
the boys are you know fascinated by the girls they're obsessed with them but they don't they don't really get them and they don't really know them they kind of merge in their in their fevered imaginations into a collective and that was easier for me to for me to do and so that's that's how i approached it i thought it was it was both appropriate and accurate about a, a teenage um understanding of of the opposite sex and it has also made it easier to, to write write the book in a sense can you be called trip fontaine and not peak in high school speaking of i am haunted by his and lux's sex scene or rather their petting scene otter insulation i mean i know we're saying lux's body through trip's eyes but the description i presume it's of her vagina is so rank Aside, aside from otter insulation, what else were you um, conflicted about? Well, I think it's exactly what we've been talking about is really its, its strength and its whole raison d'etre. I felt weird reading a book about all of these young girls killing themselves. I rewatched the film and I couldn't really watch past Cecilia, the youngest sister in the first to commit suicide, when she throws herself onto the garden railings at her birthday party. I'm not usually put off stuff just because it's disturbing. I read and loved Lullaby when I was pregnant, for God's sake. Yeah, and we, we've we read Sayaka Murata for this podcast as well. No, it, it's unflinching. The bit in the book where she throws herself out the window, where she where she lands on the fence, it is genuinely horrifying. It's like a horror movie. I, I, I gasped on the train when I read that bit. Yeah, I was, I was surprised by my lack of tolerance for it. And I mean, I also understand here that I'm critiquing the book's entire architecture here, but I didn't love the narration of... The men, I, it felt quite repetitive sometimes, their finding of evidence. Um, I think the collective we sometimes can be quite hard to keep maintain the intimacy. I wanted to hear from the girls in their own voices, but I do know that's the entire point. As Emily Temple wrote for Lit Hub, this is a novel-length critique of the way men look at women. It is literally narrated through the male gaze. Yeah, and I think for that reason, the Lisbon girls never actually feel like real beings 13 year old cecilia who wears a vintage wedding dress scrubs her high tops with a toothbrush and writes a diary about the military industrial complex it just felt like i do think the girls feel real actually i think he does a really good job at making them feel real and fallible and as i said like kind of smelly and unattractive at times so i actually i disagree with you on that actually I think I, I they feel real as in they feel as in real, you know, creatures that in that they smell. But I just I don't think thirteen year old girls act like that. I mean, you've been a thirteen year old girl. I haven't. Were you writing a diary about the military industrial complex? Well, I wasn't living in nineteen seventies suburbia, and I wasn't planning to commit suicide. I think it's more of a book about boys than girls. I think I think these are boys going through puberty. They're coming to understand the world through these girls who already seem to know the the horror of modern life. And 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 for that reason everything that happens to the Lisbon girls seems almost designed to to make the boys grow up. Um they read Cecilia's diary after she dies and uh, they say in their collective we we knew finally that the girls were really women in disguise, that they understood love and even death, and that our job was merely to create the noise that seemed to fascinate them. I read something that the author said about the casting of the girls. I think he was asked about Kirsten Dunst and whether he thought she was right to play Lux, who's the most promiscuous and, in my opinion, the most interesting of the characters. And he said that any casting of the girls would feel odd because these girls are seen at a distance. They are an abstraction to the boys. Yeah, Lux is an interesting character and and quite a, a grotesque one because she's a sex-mad creature who 
who shags boys in front of the whole neighborhood on the roof of the house. She's supposed to be 14. I found that I found that really weird. But in terms of what you're saying about the girls feeling real, she felt real. I, I thought Cecilia felt real as well. I didn't get much of a sense of the other girls. I guess that's exactly what he's saying in that in that interview. They're in their inventions of men, their inventions of boys. They're seen from a distance. So you you would rather have, have have had the book go inside the girls' heads? Do you think? I don't think it's that weird that she's shagging boys on the roof age fourteen. She was obviously just bored in suburbia, but also maybe she knew that she was going to die. And so she was trying to cram in as much sexual experience as possible. Um, would I rather the book went inside the girls' heads? Then I'd be changing the entire thing. I mean, the whole that's the whole point of the book. So no, perhaps surprisingly, I wouldn't change that. What about you? No, I, I don't think I'd change the book in a, in a broader sense. I, I loved the writing style. I liked how it approached suburban ennui, how it approached the male gaze. It sounds quite prudish, but I did find some of the characterizations of, of these teenage girls a bit gross. You know, a grown-up author describing 13, 14, 15-year-olds as round-buttocked in denim. I know you're supposed to see all of it through the eyes of teenage boys. I guess the Lisbon girls are more of a, an idea uh, that these teenage boys have than actual people, but I still felt like some of it could maybe have been paired back. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be the case with a lot of stuff from the 90s and the early noughties and obviously much before that. I mean, I often think about American Beauty and whether or not that would be made now. I mean, obviously it wouldn't be made with Kevin Spacey. I do think it's aged well, though, as a book. I think people are even more obsessed with adolescence, mental health, ageing and the male gaze, which are the main ingredients of the book. Are you going to read his other books? I really want to read Middlesex. So yes, basically I am. Don't do what I did and mix up Middlemarch and Middlesex. (laughs) Very different books. Thank you for listening. You can email us at bookchatpod at gmail.com. Bobby will be manning the helm. We are back on the 1st of May. Next month, we'll be chatting about When I Hit You by Mina Kandasamy and A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. See you next month. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.